Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 124, The Bolotnikov Rebellion, 1606-07. You've just listened to the Nutcracker Suite, Act 1, Number 4, The Russian Dance, by Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky. Russian rebellions between 1600 and 1800 shook the country. While never a true threat to the government, except for maybe the first one, they scared the rulers enough to brutally suppress them. There were four major rebellions. The first one we'll be discussing today is the Bolotnikov Rebellion of 1606-07. Then next time, the one led by Stenka Razin of 1670-01, followed by Bulavins in 1707-08, and finally Pugachevs of 1773-74. Alexander Pushkin described the four uprisings as, quote, Russian revolts, senseless and merciless. Interestingly, they were all led by Don Cossacks and spread incredibly quickly and ended equally as fast. As my Russian history professor, Dr. Paul Average, said in his book, Russian Rebels, 1600 to 1800, about the rebellions, quote, each occurred during or soon after a major war when the burden of taxes and recruitment was heaviest, and social dislocation most severe. Each was marked by savage violence and immense human suffering. In each, moreover, religious and social myths played a key part in inciting the rebellion. The lower classes were hungry for a messiah. In today's podcast, we'll go over the first of the four insurrections, one of the smallest ones, but one that gravely threatened Moscow and the government of the time, the one led by Ivan Vesayevich Bolotnikov. This rebellion is probably the least known of the four. It came at a time when the very existence of Russia was hanging in the balance, the time of troubles. This period, following the death of Ivan the Terrible's son, Tsar Fyodor, and the ascension of Boris Godunov was a scary time to be a Russian. Now, since it's been a long time since we went over the time of troubles, about two years, I'll give you some background so as to better understand the Bolotnikov Rebellion. Ivan the Terrible's reign annihilated the princely boyar class through his use of the oprichniki, his hired henchmen. Many of these people were either executed or banished to the south, where Ivan thought they would no longer pose a threat to the absolutism that he thought was best for Russia. The Russia before Ivan was one where many of the principalities were semi-autonomous, but pledged loyalty to a central authority. That was taken away from them, so they had a real grudge going against the Tsar and Moscow. But they were not the only people who were victims of Ivan's reign. The Livonian War had drained the coffers of the government, so taxis were levied and more of the men were forced to join in the army to fight the 25-year war. Because of the drain on able-bodied men, the fertile land where much of the food was grown was simply abandoned. Thousands upon thousands of people fled the cities and headed to the south and the land of the Cossacks. Whole regions of the north and central part of Russia were being depopulated. Try as he could, Tsar Boris Gudunov was unable to stem the tide. Then came the plague and famine, a famine unlike anything that hit Russia before. In the summer and autumn of 1601, 
Temperatures at night went below freezing, wiping out much of the harvests. It has been suggested that a large volcanic eruption in Peru in 1600 caused it. Hoarding by the wealthy merchants and upper class led to even worse shortages than had ever been seen. Throughout the cities and the countryside, people were starving. Stories of cannibalism, as well as people eating the bark off birch trees, were eating cats, dogs, and rats abound. Within Moscow alone, over 100,000 people died during the famine. Fully one-third the population of Russia, about two million people, perished. It was indeed a time of troubles. A man named Klopko gathered a group of slaves and peasants and marched on Moscow to murder the wealthy and take their food and possessions. Tsar Gudunov sent out a large force headed by Ivan Basmanov. The fight was brutal with numerous fatalities, including Basmanov. Klopko was captured and likely executed. It was an omen of things to come. Add to all of this, the Poles and Lithuanians were beginning to eye the lands of the Rus. They were behind the arrival of the first false Dmitri, Grigory Otrepiev. When he was overthrown, the head of one of the old Boyar families took over as Tsar, Vasily Shuisky. Shuisky would only last a few years, but it was during his reign that the Bolotnikov Rebellion would occur. Shuisky and the Boyars were deeply disliked and mistrusted by the peasants as well as the gentry. Rumors began to fly that the son of Ivan IV, Dmitri, was still really alive and roaming the countryside looking for followers to help him overthrow the evil leaders in Moscow. Shuisky saw conspiracies behind every corner, so he began to banish anyone he viewed as a threat, whether real or not. This would turn out to be a very bad move, as one of the first men he exiled, Grigory Shakhovskoy, would trigger the rebellion. Shakhovskoy had gone over to the side of the first Dmitri, which is why he had to leave Moscow, but it also gave him insight on the power of a messiah figure. He began to spread rumors that Shuisky had not killed Dmitri and that he was well and roaming the Slopskaya Ukraina, the name for the southwestern part of Russia. Joining Shokhovskoy was another disenfranchised gentryman, Mikhail Molchanov. Molchanov had friends in Poland and went there to see if he could help with some troops or some supplies or something like that to march on Moscow. Neither Molchanov or Shakhovskoy could pose as the new false Dmitri, so they needed to find a man who had both the charisma and kind of a cloudy past to fit the bill. Then, out of the blue, a stranger appeared in Sambor, Ivan Aseyevich Boletnikov, who accepted the role. He took the role, but never really embraced it. He acted more like a military leader than a messiah. Of the leader Bolotnikov, we know very little about his life before the uprising. We do know that at one time he was the slave of Prince Andrei Televetsky and that he had run away to join a band of marauding Cossacks. He was captured by Crimean Tatars and sold back into slavery as a helmsman on a Turkish galley. Somehow he escaped when in Venice and made his way back to the Don. The area was already ripe for revolt, so it didn't need much to start things going. 
the Klopko Rebellion showed that the government was ready to be taken down. And with a little bit more organization, the next one just might be successful. Given how easy it was for the first false Dmitri to take over Moscow, a well-armed large army of Cossacks should have it easy. Bolitnikov arrived in the town of Butivl in the summer of 1606. There he met with Shokhovskoy, who gave him command of a 12,000-man army. Many of the men were from the local garrison who had defected to the insurgents. Others in the band included, as Professor Average puts it, quote, fugitive peasants, impoverished townsmen, Cossacks, slaves, brigands, and drifters of every description. A few of the men were part of Klopko's rebellion, and some were followers of the first false Dmitri, which gave everyone a lot of hope and encouragement. Quickly, town after town came over to the side of the insurgents. They made for the ancient city of Kromi, which they took easily. It was a central starting point being between Slobodskaya, Ukraine, and the middle of Russia. This made Zarshuysky nervous, so he sent out a large force headed by his trusted friend, Prince Yuri Trubetskoy, who placed the town under siege. What Trubetskoy thought was, well, this was the main rebel army which he was facing, but that was a mistake. Politnikov arrived with the main army, which caused Trubetskoy's soldiers to turn around and leave the field, with many actually joining the rebels. Nearby, Prince Ivan Vorodnitsky had to run for his life as his men turned on him, with many fleeing and some, again, switching sides. The rebellion was slowly starting to gain steam. What is interesting about many of the members of the insurgency, of course not all of them, is that they were, on the whole, not the poorest people, but actually many were reasonably well off, but not wealthy by any means. They were just tired of the heavy taxes and were victims of Zargudinov's reprisals against them years before. They were angry at the government and wanted revenge. Also, the bulk of the rebels came not from the countryside, but from the towns. The reason for this was the reign of terror that was waged against the towns by Ivan the Terrible. That and the cities were where so much of the famine and plague hit hard. They marched forward towards Moscow, easily taking more and more towns. The church, for their part, was appalled by what was going on, so much so that Patriarch Hermogen sent a message out about Politnikov's agents. He said they, quote, disseminated their thievish letters in the towns, ordering the brigands to commit every wicked act from murder to plunder and to kiss the cross to that dead scoundrel and impostor, the unfrocked monk, Suedo Dmitri, proclaiming the cursed one to be alive. Again, to quote my former professor, Under Dmitri's banner, Bolotnikov transformed the time of troubles into a social rebellion of the poor against the rich. He was a cry of vengeance for the have-nots, slaves, vagabonds, Cossacks, peasants, and the flotsam thrown up from the lower depths of the Russian towns against those that thrived on their misery and enslavement. Lesser noblemen saw the rebellion as a way to get rid of the boyars above them and take their place. The boyars were considered to be the real evil, and Shusky was nothing more than a boyar in Tsar's clothing. The rebels decided to attack Moscow from two directions under the banner of Tsar Dmitri. 
Polotnikov took control of the left wing, with Istoma Pashlov and Lyapunov taking the right. The estimates of their size range from 50,000 to over 100,000. They expected an easy fight with the forces of Moscow defecting at the sight of the mass of the rebels. Zarshuysky appealed to the north because the brigands had, quote, troubled many towns, wrecked and plundered churches, torn out icons and altars and gospels, smashed holy images of the Lord and trampled them underfoot, murdered noblemen and merchants and townsfolk, and taken their wives and daughters for their pleasure. The ploy of using the desecration of the churches worked, as they collected a new and large army, which would be stationed at the town of Kaluga, led by the Tsar's brother, Ivan Shuisky. A battle ensued near the town by the confluence of the Oka and Ugra rivers, with the Tsar's forces suffering a stunning defeat. Shuisky now turned to his nephew, the brilliant Mikhail Skopin Shuisky, to take command, and command he did. His troops stopped the rebels only 12 miles from the now panicked capital. Pashkov's column began to approach Moscow from the right and taking town after town, raping, pillaging, and burning down any city that refused to capitulate quickly. By October, they were in the suburbs of Moscow and made camp in the village of Kolomenskoy. The siege of Moscow began on October 7, 1606. The fate of the rebellion was now at stake. The city, of course, was heavily fortified, and while Tsar Shuisky had few men, he was able to muster everyone in the city to help out. Volotnikov sent letters into the city, trying to incite the populace to abandon Shuisky, where he called upon them to, quote, seize Moscow, destroy the houses of the magnates, the powerful and the well-born, and take their wives and daughters for yourselves. Shuisky appealed to the church for help, which they gave willingly. The people in the streets were on the brink of taking on the Tsar, but they wanted to see this Tsar Dmitri. Bolotnikov sent word to Shakovskoy to send the man to Moscow. Shuisky needed a miracle, which he got with the defection of Lyaponov and his Ryazan militia. That and reinforcements from the areas surrounding Molensk and the northern Divna, northern Divna came rushing towards Moscow. The question of why Lyaponov would defect must be asked. The answer is, he realized the obvious fact was that if the rebellion succeeded, it would be inevitable that he, as a higher-class gentryman, would likely be the next to face the axe. His army, though, would not be the last to defect, which worried the insurgents. The northern part of Moscow was in the hands of the Tsar and his men with arms and food flowing freely. Bolotnikov knew he had to seal this opening. He sent a large army to complete the siege of the city, but was met by men led by Skopin Shuisky and Lyaponov, as well as a new regiment led by Ivan Kolyachev. The battle that ensued was fierce, but because of another betrayal, Istoma Pashkov switched sides and joined Zarshuisky. Bolitnikov's siege of Moscow was essentially over. They tried one last time to fight off the Tsar's forces, but were beaten back, suffering 1,000 casualties. But worse than that, 20,000 men were taken prisoner. Skop and Shuisky's men were after Bolitnikov's, 
who were running south as fast as they could. The siege of Moscow was over, but vast regions of the south were still in rebel hands. Rioting continued throughout the realm, with peasants fighting alongside with Tartars and Cossacks. Shuisky now needed money desperately to continue the fight, and he of course went directly to the wealthy monasteries. Because of the revolt, the Tsar also changed the law that would have repercussions for centuries to come. He created a law that said that the time that a serf could be captured and returned to the owner was no longer just five years, but fifteen. Shuisky had to crush the remaining men of the Bolotnikov rebellion. The rebels were now headquartered in Kaluga. A new problem arose, though, with a new army led by Ilya Korchakov beginning to be known in the area of Astrakhan. Shokovskoy sent emissaries to the bold leader, and they joined forces with him and Bolotnikov. By now, the new rebel force numbered 30,000 tough fighters. The new insurgent base was in the city of Tula. Prince Andrei Teletetsky, you might remember him from earlier in the podcast. Yes, he was the former owner of the slave Bolotnikov. Now, he was the head of an army to deal with the former serf. He, unfortunately for Shuisky, was not a very good leader and lost the fight against Bolotnikov's rebel army. But by June of 1607, though the government troops had gotten their act together and were on the outskirts of Tula, they were ready now to lay siege to the city. Suddenly, the false Dmitri everyone was waiting for came from Poland and was gathering followers. Shuisky acted quickly and thwarted the new army from coming to Russia. Tula was now under siege, and Shuisky gave the remaining rebels an out if they gave up. He swore he would spare anyone who surrendered. Here is a supposed conversation between him and Bolotnikov. Shuisky, are you the bandit and traitor who rose against his sovereign and tried to defeat him, believing that you yourself could thus attain the heights of state power? Bolotnikov. I have been true to the oath which I gave in Poland to the one who called himself Dmitri. Whether or not he was Dmitri, I cannot tell, as I had never before set eyes on him. I served him faithfully, but he abandoned me, and now I am here at your mercy and under your power. If you wish to kill me, here is my own saber. If you wish, on the other hand, to show me clemency according to your promise and oath, then I shall serve you as truly as I have served till now him who has forsaken me. Shuisky was not going to let this rebel live, and while he publicly banished him, when Bolotnikov re reached his place of exile, he was blinded and drowned. Shokovskoy got off easily and was banished to the far north, but he escaped and headed back toward Moscow to join with the next false Dmitri. Skopin Shuisky, though, was likely murdered by poison by his jealous uncle, who was dethroned by Polish troops just a few years later, when the Poles were thrown out and Mikhail Romanov took the throne. Then the rebellion was finally put to an end. But if Russia thought they had seen the last of major insurgency movements, they would be sorely mistaken. Worse was yet to come. Next time, we recount another revolution that would shake Russia to its core, the rebellion led by Stenka Razin. Well, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. 
I'd like to make an announcement that I'll be blogging on my site at www.russianrulershistory.com about the dozen seminal moments in Russian history that changed everything. I'll be rating them starting at number 12 and going all the way up to number 1. Please visit it when you can and sign up for updates. Also, if you have a moment, could you please rate the podcast on iTunes to help boost its ranking and get more listeners? Join us on Facebook as well, where you can ask a question, leave a message, or make a suggestion. So, as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.